I want to invite you all uh, to turn in your Bibles to two texts. We're going to start in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to flip over to Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. So start in Romans 5, where we have been the past few weeks as we're doing our series called Hope Rising. And so we're going to start in Romans 5, read 1 through 5, and then we're going to flip back to the Old Testament to a book called Lamentations, um, right before Ezekiel, and uh, right after Jeremiah. And we're going to hop over there and read that after we read Romans 5 this morning. This morning we're going to be talking, in our hope series, we've been talking about different aspects of hope each week. And so this week we come to experiencing hope. How do we experience hope? And so I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. As we read these two texts from Romans 5, 1 through 5, and then we'll hop over to Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And then turning over to Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we now ask that you would help us to understand what it is and what it means to experience hope, to have this true hope, even as Kyle prayed, a real hope, not a false hope, a hope that can be seen in the thousands of mercies you show to us each and every day. So, Father, we ask now that you would speak through me, you'd help me to be faithful to your word, And that you would take your truth, press it deep into the soil of our hearts so that it bears fruit in our lives. We need you and we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, Some of you, I'm sure have, many of you probably have seen this movie by now. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, it's an older movie. Uh, in this movie, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, they star as inmates at Shawshank Prison with little chance of ever getting out. Uh, Tim Robbins plays the character of Andy, and Morgan Freeman plays the character of Red. And uh, in this movie, Andy is falsely accused, he's tried, and he's sentenced, and there's really no legal hope of him ever getting out. Uh, Andy and Red, uh, they eventually become friends in prison, and 
One day, they're, they're sitting there at lunch. Andy has just gotten out of solitary confinement. They're asking him how it went, how you survived. And he starts talking about music. And Andy says this. He says, the music was here and here. That's the one thing they can't confiscate, not ever. That's the beauty of it. Haven't you ever felt that way about music, Red? Played a mean harmonica as a younger man. Lost my taste for it, though. Didn't make much sense on the inside. Well, here's where it makes the most sense. We need it so that we don't forget. Forget? Yeah, that there are things in this world not carved out of gray stone. That there's a small place inside of us they can never lock away. And that place is called hope. Hope is a dangerous thing. Drive a man insane. It's got no place here. Better get used to the idea. And if you know this movie, eventually the both of them, they get out through different circumstances. And Andy leaves Red a letter in a, a location that only Red knows about. And Red gets to that spot. He opens up the letter. He starts reading it. And basically, Andy is inviting him to the place where he has escaped to, a remote fishing village. But in this, he writes this. He says, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well, your friend, Andy. Hope is a good thing and no good thing ever dies. You could say that maybe is somewhat what Paul is talking about here as he comes to verse 5. In verse 5, Paul has come to a conclusion of sorts. He started back up in verse 3 where he talked about rejoicing in our suffering and how that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope. And it's here that he kind of stops and he elaborates for a little bit. He says this hope does not put us to shame. Hope is a good thing, and no good thing ever dies. Actually, it's honorable hope. It's not shameful hope. It's honorable hope. You see, Paul feels the need to say that the hope that we have does not put us to shame, and that it does not disappoint us. In fact, we should actually boast in it. Look back up in verse 2 of chapter 5. You'll see that word there that says rejoice. And some of you probably have a note there that says boasting. This is this word for boasting. In other words, we are to actually boast in this hope. State it proudly. There's actually nothing shameful, nothing embarrassing, nothing we need to hide and be ashamed about, about this hope that Paul speaks of. On the contrary, we should actually express a high confidence a high confidence in this hope. You see, Paul is anticipating something. You notice that? Paul's anticipating the fact that some will feel shame in having a hope that is like this. Notice how he says, and hope does not put us to shame. Why would he say that? Why would he say that if he's not anticipating the doubts, right? Hope does not put us to shame. He's anticipating that some may be thinking, is this hope in Christ? real? Is this really going to pay off? Isn't it just wishful thinking? He's assuming people are going to have their doubts about this hope. And maybe you do as well this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you feel that 
Maybe you're wrestling with that hope. But why might you think that way? Why might we feel that way? Well, look around you, Josh. Look around you. What do you see in this world? We see the, the wars that are going on, tragedies, people fighting. Our experiences, our circumstances tell us that when they're difficult, and then even when we look inside of ourselves, and we know the struggles we have, we know how we don't deal with people rightly. We see it outside of us, we see it inside of us, and how this world is broken and it's messy. And it's easy for us to live during this time, to look around us and to look inside of us and to wonder, what exactly is my hope in? What exactly is my hope in? And sometimes we can even be led to despair. Led to despair in that. But Paul, notice what Paul's doing. Paul is really adamant. He wants to counter that kind of thinking. That there is a real, true hope that exists. It's not a hope in change of our earthly circumstances and situations, but it's a hope in an eternal, heavenly future that is guaranteed in Christ. In fact, if you look at verses 9 through 11, he goes on, he talks about how Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who has reconciled us. This is a sure, guaranteed hope. Um, If you're like me, you probably get these advertisements either in your literal mailbox or your email inbox of all these advertisements that boast of saying, we will give you cheaper service, right? So you get an internet flyer that says, oh, we'll give it to you for this price, no fees, you know, no equipment rental or whatever, and we'll lock it in at this price. But then you go and you do a little research and you learn that, well, there actually are some fees, some taxes. Oh, and by the way, that price is only going to last for about six months, and then things will change. When we talk about guarantees, when we talk about this kind of hope, we're not talking about something where maybe Jesus will walk away at some point. We're not talking about a hope where, well, if this and this happens, then it's gone. It's not guaranteed. No, we're actually talking about a guaranteed hope. Our hope does not put us to shame. We have no reason to hide because it's guaranteed. We have it now and we'll one day have it in full one day. It's a hope that is secured by Christ, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. He's the one who stands behind it. It's a sure hope of a future with Christ where, indeed, our circumstances will change. Our circumstances, our situations, they will change one day. They will be redeemed. There will be no more sorrow, sickness, sadness, pain. All the wheelchairs and crutches, sin and sorrow will be gone. It'll be over. And to hope this way as Christians in Christ, it's not fake. It's not a false hope. It's as strong as the one who stands behind the guarantee, Jesus Christ. He's the one. Remember, he's the one who has accomplished this. Our hope is not a wishful way of thinking. Like waiting for the doctor to call with your test results, hoping. It's not that. Rather, our hope is this a patient waiting for guaranteed positive results. Let me say it again. Hope, a patient waiting for guaranteed 
positive results. That's what we're saying when we're talking about hope. But how so? How is it real? How is it real hope? This is interesting. This is where Paul moves on. If you look down and he gets into God's love because of God's love for us. This hope that does not put us to shame, why doesn't it, Paul? Well, let me tell you, it's because of God's love for you. God's love for you. This hope doesn't disappoint us or put us to shame, and it's because of God's steadfast, changing, never fading, never wearing out, never interrupted service of his love constant love, a love that was demonstrated by the Father who so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. And Jesus does the Father's will. It was a perfect love that moved our Father, think about this, a perfect love that moved our Father to redeem a people like you and I who wanted nothing to do with him, who were actually in our sin and in our wickedness And in our brokenness, he didn't look at us and say, you know what, once you start working harder, trying, doing better, once I see that kind of effort start taking place, then yeah, maybe I'll start moving toward you. No, it was actually at our worst. Think about this. It was at your worst. When you hated him the most, what did he do? He didn't turn his back on you. He didn't walk away. But he actually moved toward you when you were his enemy. That is amazing. In love, Jesus gave up his life while we hated him so that we could be rescued from our sin and brought into his family by faith in him. Look a little further down at verse eight. Look at verse eight and just take that in. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ thought about dying for us? No, Christ died for us while we were still yet sinners. Take that in if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning because it was in that state that he moved toward you, not away from you. That is amazing grace. You see, we have that kind of love, that kind of love, and that line, it can't be cut And there's no risk of a severed line or interrupted service. It's always on and it's always working. And it never goes into a blackout. In fact, this love has actually been given abundantly to us in our hearts. That's where Paul moves next. He says, poured into our hearts. It's been poured into our hearts. And this is a word that it's lost on us. But the sense of this word is that It's to cause someone or something to fully experience it. That's the language that Paul is using here. In other words, our hearts have been made to fully experience the love of God. What Paul wants you to understand is that God's love that has been poured into you isn't just something you can take or leave, but it's actually something that causes you to fully experience it. It's both objective and subjective. His love is full and vast like the ocean, right? Like Paul says in Ephesians 3, talks about how we can comprehend the love of God, its breadth, its length, its height, its depth. The love of God that we would know this. 
His love is full and vast, and it's been poured into our hearts. And how has that happened? How has that happened? Through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He is the one that has actually done this. He is the one that has affected this in us, who's actually brought it about. If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, upon conversion, the Holy Spirit took up permanent residence in your heart. Took up permanent residence in your heart. Whether you feel it or know it, he has come and he has taken up residence. And he has filled you with a knowledge of God's love for you, but he also assures you of this love. You may not feel it all the time, but it's been done to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He has taken up residence. It's both an objective reality and a subjective reality. The filling of God's love has been done objectively by the Holy Spirit who is in us. But then he also assures us. He speaks that to our hearts of his love. It's kind of like a parent telling a child how much they, that they love her. Even though she doesn't feel it, even though maybe she doesn't believe it, they tell her that they love her. And there will be moments when maybe she grasps it, or there'll be moments when the parent speaks it and she actually hears it. It's kind of like that. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, what would, what would happen if we really knew and felt his love for us? I think we walk around and we go, yeah, he loves me, or, well, uh, I don't know, I don't really feel it, or uh, that's, that's, that, that's that emotional stuff. I really don't, eh, don't like think about it. But what would actually take place in our lives if we really grasped and understood his love for us? You've probably had someone encourage you, I hope you have, at some point in your life. Maybe when you accomplished something or you had a game and they came and they cheered you on or you had a performance or you, or you did really well on a project. You helped the company save money or you, uh, you secured this deal and brought in a new client and your boss said, well done, good job. You know, when someone says that, right, what does that do to you? Even if it's for just a moment, Maybe you shrugged it off, said, oh, that's nice. Yeah, you shrugged it off. But what did that do even for a moment? It felt good, right? feels good for someone to say, well done, even if it's just for a moment. And what did that do to you inside of you? Did you go out of there angry and upset? No, you probably walked around a little different the rest of that day, feeling pretty good, feeling pretty positive. And probably because of that, positive things came out of you. And it's like that with God's love, except it's far better and it's far greater. It's like he's saying this all the time. He's saying this all the time and we don't hear it many times because we struggle with a, a deafness of sorts, a deafness, we can't hear it. In the movie Coda, if you've seen it, there's a character named Ruby uh, who's the only hearing member of a deaf family in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And at age 17, uh, she works mornings before school to help her parents and brother keep the fishing business afloat. And remember, she's the only one that can hear in her family. But in joining her high school's choir club, 
uh, Ruby finds herself drawn to both her duet partner and her latent passion for singing. And at one point, her family attends one of her performances. And it's a pretty cool scene because in this moment, they're seeing her sing. And they're in this auditorium with all these other people. And they can't hear her. And so what do they do? They're looking around at people's faces. Looking around, seeing what their reactions were. Looking at the smiles on their faces, how their heads are bobbing. How they're enjoying it. And they're watching their daughter sing. And they can tell by the reaction of the people around them that, yeah, she's good. She can sing. And in the end, what do they do? They stand up with everyone else. They're clapping or doing the sign language for clapping to cheer her on. You see, they couldn't hear, but yet they looked for ways to engage and to cheer her on and to truly experience what was going on in that moment. You see, we can be deaf to his love. And sometimes maybe we're just sitting in our seats, not even bothering to look around. Not even bothering to look with our eyes and hear with our hearts. Instead, we don't realize the love. And so what happens is hope starts to die. You know what takes its place? Despair. We're calling this series Hope Rising because we want that to grow in our hearts and lives. And when we understand God's love for us, that can increase our hope. So how can we? How can we really experience this real hope that is in Christ? This hope that Paul is actually talking about here. How can we experience it? Well, I think there's something instructive for us that comes from an unlikely place in a book called Lamentations, right? I mean, just think about the name. What's, what's, in, the, what's in the name of the book? Laments. You're going to talk about experiencing hope by going to a book called Lamentations. It's an unlikely place, but it's so beautiful. Lamentations was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and it's an expression of grief, like a eulogy, at a funeral. That's what you should think as you're reading through it. Like a eulogy at a funeral. It's a lament over the fall of Jerusalem because of Judah's sin. And it's weird because you would think, really? Laments as a pathway to hope? But that's where the author takes us in chapter 3. You see, there's all this sorrow and suffering that's going on. All these laments. But it was there to produce hope in a faithful God who loves us with a steadfast love and shows mercy and faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Look at Lamentations 3.21. And just look at that first verse. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What's he saying here? Well, this word in your text, you may see a little note there. Some of your texts may say, recall. But actually, this word that's actually used here is the word for turning or returning or turning back. It's a word that's commonly used in the Old Testament in speaking of us turning away from our sin and turning toward the Lord. Returning to the Lord. It's a term that's used here. And so that's instructive for us because basically what he's saying is we need to do a 180. 
We need to return. We need to repent. We need to turn back. How so? What does that look like? Well, I think the author of Lamentations was very helpful to us in this. In 321, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He's calling things back to his mind. He's returning his mind to something. And what is it that he's returning his mind to? As, you, as we just read, he's, that his steadfast love never changes and never fades. It was demonstrated to us as we see in Christ. He, go, he showed us mercy and not giving us what we deserve. God is faithful. He will not break his promises. He is ever faithful. You are in him and he is in you. And therefore, you can have real hope. You know the real work of repentance that we are being called to here in order to experience hope is to call those things to our mind. That's what the author of Lamentations is saying. Is saying, but this, even though all these things have gone on, all these laments, but this I call to mind and therefore I will have hope. What is it? Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We need to recall those things to our mind. That is the work of repentance that you and I need to do to call back to our minds so that therefore we have hope of his steadfast, never-ending love, his mercies and his compassion and his faithfulness, even though we are so unfaithful. We are always talking to ourselves. You're probably talking to yourself right now. What are you saying to yourself? Let that self-talk be Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we want to experience this hope. This hope that has been poured into our hearts through the love that has been given to us through, your, through the Holy Spirit. Father, we want to truly experience this love in our lives, experience this hope in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to take in your love so that we can experience this hope, truly experience it. Help us to speak these truths to our mind and our heart of your steadfast love that has been poured into our hearts. Help us to meditate on it, to contemplate it, to soak it in for ourselves because it is true if we are followers of you. Help us to know this more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.